Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Good evening, and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, July 16th, 2020, and this week's Parsha is the double portion of Matos Masai, and this double portion completes the Book of Amidbar, the fourth book of the Torah, which we will complete this Shabbos. People who keep kosher usually have, or if they don't have, they want a bigger kitchen. Because if you're keeping kosher, there are more dishes, more utensils, there's meat, there's milk. So there was once a religious Jew who renovated his home. And when he finished the renovation, he invited his friend, who was a secular Jew, to come and to see the finished finished renovation. The home was beautiful. They went from room to room, and finally they came to the kitchen, and the kitchen was enormous. I mean, he just couldn't believe it. It's like it was the kitchen of a hotel, just Endless cabinets, rows and rows and rows of cabinets. This friend who was visiting just could not believe the gigantic size of this kitchen. So he said to his friend, I realize that you keep kosher, but why do you need such an enormous kitchen? So the man said, well, yes, we keep kosher. And for that reason, we have nine full sets of everything. Nine sets of dishes, nine sets of pots and pans, nine sets of utensils, nine sets of glasses, nine of everything. His friend says, nine? Why do you need nine sets of everything? So the man explains, well, first of all, during the week, We have a set, a full set of dairy dishes and a full set of meat dishes. Then there's Shabbos. On Shabbos, for Shabbos also, we want to have a nicer set, a full set of dairy, because sometimes we have dairy even on Shabbos, and a full set of meat dishes for Shabbos. Then comes Pesach. So for Pesach, During the weekdays of Pesach, we have a full set of Pesach dairy dishes and a full set of Pesach meat dishes for the weekdays. But then there's Pesach Shabbos and Yom Tov, the Seder. So we have another full set of meat dishes and a full set of dairy dishes. So the friend says to him, but that's only eight sets. Why do you have nine? We also have one set for treif. One set for treif. Why do Jews have so many sets of dishes? So, keeping kosher involves many different mitzvahs, many different commandments. There are many components that go into keeping kosher. There 
is the question of the kosher species, which are the kosher species to eat among animals, among fish. Preparing meat properly is another aspect of keeping kosher. Not eating meat and milk together is another aspect of kosher. Avoiding bugs in our produce is another aspect. If we are in Israel, there are additional requirements. Okay, but why do we need separate dishes? For example, you have to have meat and milk separate. I understand that. You cannot eat meat and milk together if you're keeping kosher. But why do you need separate dishes for those? So, the answer is a mitzvah in our parsha. And the mitzvah is a concept that is known as ta'am ki'ikar. Ta'am ki'ikar means the taste or the flavor of a food is the same as the food itself. What it means is as follows. Let's say you have a pot and you cook, let's say, chicken, chicken soup in a pot. So the chicken is the actual ikar, that's the actual food. But when you cook a food in a utensil, particles are absorbed into the wall of the utensil. And the next time you cook, whatever was previously absorbed is released into the new food. Now, let's say on uh, Tuesday, you make a pot of chicken soup. And then you take it out and you clean it and you wash the pot. And now on Wednesday, you want to take the same pot and you want to cook something that's dairy. Well, what's going to happen is, on Tuesday when you cook the chicken soup, the particles of chicken were absorbed into the wall of the pot. Now when you cook the dairy food, that chicken is going, the taste of that chicken <coughs> is going to be released into this dairy. You will have a mixture of meat and milk, and that's prohibited. That's ta'am ki'ikar. What is absorbed into the wall of the pot is the same as if it was cooked there itself. And that's why you need two separate sets of dishes. And this is explained in a mitzvah in this week's parsha. So the Torah says, so in the stone chumash, if you have the stone chumash and you want to turn, it's page 906. If you don't have the chumash, don't worry about it because I'm going to read the psukim. The Torah says as follows. Page 906, this is chapter 31. In the middle of the page, pasuk number 21. Torah says, Vayomer Elazar Hakohen El Anshe Hatzava Haboim Lamilchama. Elazar the Kohen. Elazar was the son of Aharon, and after Aharon passed away, Elazar was the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. So there were soldiers who came back from war and they brought these utensils, and the utensils were treif. They had been used for treif food, for non kosher food. So Elazar said to them, this is the law of the Torah, what Hashem commands, and that is any metal that was used for non-kosher food, since it has absorbed the particles of non-kosher food, you have to kosher it. Koshering it means, let's say, for example, to put it in boiling water. So what happens when you put it in boiling water is whatever had been absorbed by the wall of the utensil is now released into this water that you're boiling and it removes it from the wall of the utensil so now it's as if it's sterilized. And now you can go and use it for something else. That's how koshering works and that is what 
Elazar is commanding these people, you have these treif utensils that were used for non-kosher food. Here is how you prepare them. You have to kosher them in boiling water. This is a major aspect of what it means to keep kosher. And this has, as you can understand, a major impact on your lifestyle of a person who's keeping kosher because this means that not only the foods have to be proper, but the utensils in which they are prepared or with which they are prepared also have to be kosher. That's why we need separate sets of dishes and pots and pans and silverware. So if you were to ask the question, why can't I go to a non-kosher restaurant and eat a food that was prepared there that is inherently kosher? For example, why can't I go to a non-kosher restaurant and eat a salad? Or why can't I go to a non-kosher restaurant and eat fish? And there are two reasons. One reason is because you never know what ingredients are actually going to be in there. And even if you think you know what the ingredients are, very often, especially in restaurants, there are other ingredients added that you may not know about that could actually be non-kosher. That's number one. But number two, even if all of the ingredients were kosher, but the utensils are trafe. So once you take a non-kosher knife and cut a food, or once you take uh, uh, even a kosher food product, and you put it in a pan, a non-kosher pan, the food becomes trafe. That's because of this mitzvah. Okay, very important mitzvah, very important aspect of what it means to keep kosher. But I want to ask kind of a side question. There's something very strange about the Pasuk that I just quoted to you. One more time. Vayomer Elazar HaKohen Elazar, the Kohen Gadol, says to these returning soldiers, This is the law of the Torah, that God commanded Moshe, that if you have metal utensils that were used for non-kosher, you have to kosher them by taking them through boiling water or through heat in some other way. Something very strange. Why is Elazar teaching this mitzvah? Moshe teaches the mitzvahs. Hashem spoke to Moshe. Moshe teaches the Jewish people. Why all of a sudden is Elazar, who's actually, remember, Moshe's nephew, right? Aaron's son. Aaron's already passed away. Why is Elazar teaching this law? So the answer to that question is simple, but it is profound. And it is relevant to every one of us every day. Let's start at the beginning of the narrative. If you turn back, if you're following in the Chumash on page 902, that's the beginning of this narrative. Page 902 in the Stone Chumash at the bottom of the page, it's chapter 31, Pasuk number 1, Vayadaber Hashem El Moshe Lemar, God says to Moshe, Nikom Nikmas B'nei Yisrael, I want you to avenge on behalf of the people of Israel, Me'es Hamidyonim, 
from the nation of Midian. Midian was one of the nations on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, and they had done something very terrible to the Jewish people. And God says to Moshe, I want you to go fight a battle against the people of Midian. Okay. So Moshe raises the army. They go out to fight this battle. And then they come back Now I'm on page 904, Pasuk Yud Gimel 13. They come back and they bring back with them spoils of war. Moshe and Elazar and the other elders went out to greet the soldiers as they returned victorious from this war. But Moshe sees that they're bringing back spoils. Vayiksof Moshe al Moshe is angry with the people who are returning with the soldiers. They took spoils of war, and they were not supposed to. Moshe had told them not to, and, Mo- and the people and the soldiers did it anyway. Vayiksof Moshe, and Moshe is angry at them. Says Rashi. Lefi Moshe lechal kaas. Because Moshe lost his temper. He gave in to anger. Ba lechal taus. He came to make a mistake. Shinis alma mimenu halachos. He forgot the law. He forgot what God had told him. And that's why it's Elazar who teaches this rule because Moshe had forgotten. Moshe had forgotten because he lost his temper with these soldiers. And remember, Moshe was right. What the soldiers did was wrong. Maybe Moshe was even right to be upset with them. But here's the lesson. Even if you're right, if you lose your temper, you will lose. You will be diminished by your anger. I've shared with you before the statement of our sages, es a person who loses their temper, it makes you lose your way. It makes you ridiculous. It makes you illogical. It makes you forgetful. The mitzvah of tam ki'ikar, this rule that the utensils also have to be kosher, and if they absorb non-kosher food, they themselves will render the next food non-kosher. This mitzvah plays a large role in our lives as Jews every day. How we learn this mitzvah from Elazar and not from Moshe should also play a major role in our lives every day. I told this story recently. I told this story in another context in March. Usually I try not to repeat stories too often, 
But this story deserves to be an exception to that rule. And it's a story that I heard from Rabbi Melech Biederman. And it concerns a man who lives in Bnei Brak. His name is Shimon Schwartz. So this was during the summertime and Shimon Schwartz promised his children that he would take them to a swimming pool when he came home from work, summertime, it it's, it's, uh, only gets dark later in the evening. As soon as I come home, I'm going to take you swimming. Children were very excited. But he was busy. He was running late. And by the time he came home, had to hurry, to rush, to go to the pool. And they were only going to be able to be there for a little while until the pool would close. So as soon as they got there, Shimon goes over to the owner and he says, how late do you open? Because I want to know how much time I have with my kids to spend in the pool. So the owner says, 8 p.m. out of the pool, 8.15, we close. Okay, fine, they had enough time. 8 p.m. out of the pool, 8.15, they close, they go in, children are swimming, Shimon is swimming with them, they're having a good time. Everything is great. 7.45. 7.45, the lifeguard says over the loudspeaker, everybody out of the pool. We're closing. Shimon gets very upset. So he starts yelling at the lifeguard. What do you mean 7.45 you're closing? You're out of the pool 7.45. The owner told me, and I asked specifically when we came, the owner said 8 o'clock out of the pool. What are you telling me 7.45? My kids want to continue swimming? And they start arguing and it gets a little heated and Shimon is angry and he's arguing. After a minute, he calms down. He gives in, tells the kids, come on, let's go. He realizes this is not an issue that it's worth getting angry over. Says to his children, let's go. It's time to go. As they're leaving, the lifeguard notices a little boy under the water. The lifeguard jumps in and drags the boy out. The boy is unconscious. They call Hatsala. The lifeguard is doing CPR. They rush him to the hospital. The boy is still unconscious. It's, a, it's, it, it's terribly, terribly frightening. They rush him to the hospital. They get to the hospital and, and Baruch Hashem, thank God, the doctors are able to save this boy's life. He's fine. He's okay. No permanent damage. He's okay. Baruch Hashem. Thank God. The doctor says to Shimon, the father, he says, <clears throat> there is a specific number of minutes that a person can be without oxygen before there is, God forbid, permanent brain damage. And your son was one minute away from that limit. One more minute, had we gotten to him one minute later, God forbid, it would have been, there would have been permanent damage. Baruch Hashem, thank God, the boy was fine, no permanent damage, one more minute.
Shimon realizes, I was arguing in the water. I was arguing with the lifeguard. Because I was right. Because the owner did say 8 p.m. The lifeguard had no right to tell us to leave at 7.45. But my arguing only hurt me. Had I continued arguing with the lifeguard for one more minute, what would have happened to my son? We have to live with this reality of what is at stake. Wherever we are, even if we are right, losing our temper can destroy us, can diminish us, as it diminished Moshe, even when we are right. I'd like to turn to another narrative in the Parsha. In the Stone Chumash on page 910, starting with Pasuk number Aleph, number one. It's chapter Lama Bey's uh, 32. So the Torah says, Umikne Rav Hoya Livne Ruven Vilivne God Otsumaod. The tribe of Ruven and God had a gigantic number of th- their flocks were gigantic. They had uh, very, very large flocks. And the place where they were was very good pasture land. And the, the leaders of the tribe of God and Ruvain came to Moshe and they said, let us stay here. Don't make us cross the Jordan. Now let's just understand. This is the end of the 40 years in the desert. Just before Moshe's death, just before the Jewish people are going to cross over the Jordan into the land of Israel, they're on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, what is now today Jordan. And these two tribes, they come to Moshe and they say, you know what? You go ahead, but could we just stay here? This is good for us. We have lots of flocks, lots of cattle, lots of sheep, and there's wonderful pasture here. You go ahead, but we would prefer to stay here. Pasuk Vav, number six. Vayomer Moshe livnei God v'livnei Reuven. And Moshe responds to the tribe of God and the tribe of Reuven. Now let's stop right there. Before we go any further, if I was Moshe and I was responding to what they said, here's what I would have said. A chutzpah after 40 years of trying to reach a goal, how can you stop here at the doorstep on the other side of the river? 
We've been traveling all this time. Our, our entire purpose has been to be able to enter the promised land, the land of Israel. And you want to stay here outside of the land of Israel? Today, if you go to visit the Louvre in Paris, well, not today, but either a few months ago or hopefully in a few months. So the entrance to the Louvre Museum is a magnificent structure recently designed by I.M. Pai. It's, it's magnificent. But years ago, if you went to the Louvre years ago, like, I don't know, I don't remember exactly, 30, 40, 50 years ago, the entrance to the Louvre, the most magnificent collection of art in human history, very simple entrance. There was a, a courtyard, which I remember from going as a kid, kind of an empty courtyard, and you walk in, there's a door, and there's a little entryway, and there's a desk, I guess, where you pay the fee to go in, and you go in, very simple, very simple, small uh, entranceway. Can you imagine, just imagine this, you're standing at this entryway, and um, there's on the wall, there's a little painting, an utterly forgettable painting, a little painting, and you're at the entrance, you're at the doorway, and the guard says to you, okay, come this way to, to, to enter, and you say to the guard, you know what, I'm fine right here. This painting is all I need. I, I, I'm just going to look at this painting for a while, and then I'm going to go home. <laughs> you have to be crazy. The, 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 the riches of human civilization and artistic talent is right inside this door. You're going to stay at the entrance and not even go in? God is offering the gift of the holiness of the land of Israel? God is offering the opportunity to build an ideal civilization? God is offering the opportunity to do mitzvahs, commandments that can only be performed inside the land of Israel. God is offering to be able to be together as an Am, as a people of Israel, and you want to stay outside? What a tremendous lack of idealism and what an utter lack of gratitude. After all that Hashem is, do is doing to, to help us reach here, and you don't care? You want to stay outside? Okay, that's what I would have said. I confess, I might have lost my temper a little bit if I was giving the answer. Okay. That's not what Moshe says. Moshe says, one more time, Pasuk Vav, Vayomer Moshe, Moshe says, Lama siniun es lev b'nei Yisrael me'avores el ha'aretz. Why are you lowering the morale of the rest of the Jewish people? Because if you don't go in, the rest of the people, the other tribes are going to think the reason you don't want to go in is because you're afraid of how fierce and difficult it will be to conquer and settle the land. So you're afraid, so you want to stay here. And if you're afraid, maybe you're going to make them afraid. Okay, that's what Moshe says. So they negotiate. They finally come to an agreement. 
And that's what happens. Those two tribes, it's actually two and a half tribes, they stay on the eastern bank and the rest of the people goes into Israel. My question is, why is that the issue? Lowering the morale of the rest of the Jewish people, that's the only issue that Moshe has to raise? What about the idealism, reaching Eretz Yisrael, the holiness? Okay, that's my question. I don't understand why Moshe only raises this objection of lowering the morale. Okay, I do not have an answer to this question. So, if you can come up with an answer, I would love to hear it. But whatever answer you will give me, history shows that these two and a half tribes remained separated from the rest of the Jewish people. Fast forward 800 years, at the end of the first temple period, when the Beis Amigdash, the temple is destroyed, that's what we commemorate on Tisha B'Av that we're leading up to, the ninth of Av. That destruction and exile occurred in four waves. The fourth wave was the destruction and exile of Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, and the southern kingdom. Remember, excuse me, years earlier, there was a civil war and the Jewish, the Israel was divided into a Jewish kingdom in the north and a Jewish kingdom in the south. And the Jewish kingdom in the north was known as the kingdom of Israel and the Jewish kingdom in the south was known as the kingdom of Yehuda, of Judah. The fourth and final wave of the destruction was the destruction of Yerushalayim and the destruction of the base of Migdash. That was the Chorban, the destruction of the temple for which we observe, commemorate Tisha B'Av. But there were three earlier waves of destruction and exile before they reached Jerusalem. And that was in the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was exiled years earlier in three waves. The first wave was the destruction and exile of those Jews living on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. Now, I don't have an answer to my question of why Moshe raises the issue of morale and not the issue of remaining separate from the rest of the Jewish people. But the fault that I am highlighting in their request is in fact true, that they remained separate and they suffered the consequence because they were the first to be exiled from their land. Our sages teach us, al tifrosh minatzibor, don't separate yourself from the community. Don't separate yourself. Don't distance yourself from the tzibor, from the congregation. And this applies in situations that are small and routine, and it applies in situations that are large and dramatic. Sometimes I notice this in shul. You know, uh, we're, we're in shul, let's say we're in shul, or even if we're outside shul, 
either way, inside or outside, and you have a minion, you have a, a tzibor, a congregation. Okay, I understand. Some people need a little bit more personal space. Okay, one or two seats separate from others. I understand that. But then, sometimes you see, I notice one person way, way far away from everybody else. One person just outside the door. One person on the complete other side of the room. Now, maybe, sometimes, there's a legitimate reason for it, maybe. But I just wondered to myself, why is that person so intent on separating themselves from the group? We have to be very, very careful. Altifrosh minat sibor. Not to separate ourselves from the congregation, from the community. I want to share a very powerful story with you. This story is told by Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz. During World War II, before and after, Rav Shmulevitz was the Rosh HaYeshiva, the head of the yeshiva of the Mirror Yeshiva. That was one of the great yeshivas in Lithuania, a small town called Mir. And it was a great advanced, high-level institute for Torah study. When World War II came and the Nazis were approaching and everyone was very late trying to flee, many people tried to flee to the west, to the south, and as we know, they did not make it. The Mir Yeshiva, the students, the young men, and the staff, the teachers, they made two decisions. First, they decided, whatever happens, we're staying together as a group. We are going to remain as a unified group, and we're all going together. And the second thing they decided is, We're not going west, we're going east. Now, in Lithuania, the capital at that time was Kovna. You may be familiar with this part of the story, and that is an amazing gentleman named Sugihara, who was the Japanese consul in Kovna. He was the consul in charge of tourism. Let me ask you a question. In the middle of World War II, who do you think in Kovna was thinking about traveling as a tourist to Japan? So it's a whole question, what in the world was Sugihara even doing there? But he was a righteous person. And Sugihara wrote visas illegally and he saved lives. He wrote approximately 300 visas just for the students and teachers of the Mir Yeshiva so they could all travel together. He wrote a total of over 10,000 visas and he did it at the cost of personal danger And he suffered because of it. He sacrificed. He was one of the tzaddikei umos ha'olam, 
one of the righteous of the nations of the world. We should remember him for a blessing. Okay, so this group of 300 has visas, travels eastward all the way across Russia, and they finally make it first to Kobe, Japan, and from Kobe they go to Shanghai, and they spend the rest of the war in Shanghai. When they got to Shanghai, they found something incredible. You have 300 young people. They want to be able to study Torah together. Where is there a place in Shanghai, Japan, in the middle of World War II, for them all to be able to gather together to study Torah? Well, it happens that there was a place, and it was called the Base Aharon Synagogue. It was a beautiful, enormous, fully equipped synagogue. By the way, this synagogue in Shanghai a few years ago was renovated again. I don't think now it's open to the public, but it has been at certain points in the future. It is a gorgeous, beautiful synagogue. And it was empty because before these people came fleeing from the Nazis, there were no Jews in Shanghai. Here's the story. Years before, years before, there was a very wealthy man, Jewish man, who lived in Shanghai. He had no children. He was very wealthy. He was nearing his death. And he had a dream in his mind. He got an idea in his mind. He wanted to build a beautiful synagogue in the middle of Shanghai. There were no Jews there. But he built it. And the, the synagogue sat unused for 15 years. Until all of a sudden, 300 yeshiva bachrim show up. And they need a place to study Torah. And there's this gorgeous, beautiful, gigantic shul. And that's where they spent their time. Amazing. And they studied Torah there until the end of the war. Many other miracles occurred to this group of students and teachers. In fact, after the war, a disproportionate number of those students became the world leaders of the Jewish people in the generation and, and second generation and even the third generation after the war came from that group, a very incredible group. Many important stories about that group. Okay, that's just the background. Now here comes the story. So Rav Chaim Shmulevitz was the Rosh Yeshiva. The students and the teachers were all studying every day in the main sanctuary of the synagogue. Plenty of room, main sanctuary, everyone is there together, studying, learning, teaching. A few of the boys went up to the balcony to study, away from everybody else. And Rav Chaim Shmulevitz was upset with them. And he said to them, if you don't stay with the tzibur, with the congregation, 
you won't be saved. If you separate yourself from the community, you will not be protected by its merit. And that was the fate of the tribes of Gad and Reuven on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. I want to share one final piece with you and it relates to a passage in the second Parsha, Masai, on page 928. If you're in the Chumash, page 928, chapter 35, starting with Pasuk number test number 9. This is a very interesting mitzvah. The Torah says as follows. The Torah says, God says to Moshe, Hashem says to Moshe, when you go into the land of Israel, I want you to designate Are Miklat, cities of refuge, cities of sanctuary. And this is intended for a person who, God forbid, causes someone else's death through negligence or an accident. So it's not a willful murder, which is a capital crime, but it is an inadvertent, an accident. <coughs> and the Ir Miklat, the city of refuge or the city of sanctuary, was intended to be a place that a person would be sentenced to go to live there for a certain amount of time. And it was intended to be a positive environment for rehabilitation. This is, in fact, one of the earliest models for alternative justice instead of punitive justice. And there are many important lessons that apply and can be applied to our criminal justice system today. A very important subject and needs to be studied in depth to derive all of its lessons. I want to focus just on one small detail. How long was a person sentenced to be in exile in this city if they were convicted of the crime of negligent homicide? So the Torah says on page 930 something that's very strange. Page 930 the middle of Pasuk number 25, Admos A person who was convicted and sentenced to be exiled to one of these cities of refuge was required to stay there until the Kohen Gadol died. That begs two questions. Number one, what's the connection between the death of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, who has nothing to do with the incident that occurred, and these people going home from exile? And number two, it's very strange because at the death of the Kohen Gadol, everyone who was in this city would go home. How is that fair 
One person might have arrived there just a few days ago. One person might have arrived there years ago. How is that just? That everybody's length of sentence is distant, is different. Okay, those are good questions for another time. Actually, this morning in our uh, 10 at 9 session, I discussed an approach to that. The recording you can watch uh, online. That's for another time. I want to focus on a very strange comment in the Talmud. The Talmud says something very curious. You have all these people stuck in these cities of refuge until the Kohen Gadol dies. As soon as he dies, they go home. Presumably, they are all praying for the Kohen Gadol to die so they can go home and resume their lives. So the Talmud says that the mother of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, his mother would bake treats and give them to the people who were stuck in these cities so that those people would not be praying for the death of the Kohen Gadol, her son. Two questions. Number one, we're talking about people who are criminals. They were convicted of negligent homicide. Yes, it was not willful, but it was still negligent. They are sentenced to this period of exile. Their action resulted in someone's death, God forbid. And now this criminal is praying to God for the death of the Kohen Gadol, who, by the way, again, has nothing to do with what they did. And the Kohen Gadol, a tzaddik, a righteous man, the leader of the Jewish people, the spiritual leader of the Jewish people, what kind of impact could such a prayer have? The, a criminal who caused somebody's death is now praying for the death of another righteous person? Is that going to be a prayer that's going to have any effect? Why should the mother of the Kohen Gadol even worry about such a prayer? That's question number one. Question number two. And if you'll tell me that the mother of the Kohen Gadol is so concerned about these prayers coming from these criminals that they're praying for a son to die, let me ask you a question. So bringing them some chocolate chip cookies is going to make a difference. You bring someone some cookies, some brownies, and then all of a sudden they're not going to pray for whatever it is that will lead to their freedom? So Rabbi Melech Biederman provides this answer. The answer is yes and yes. The prayer of even a criminal praying for the death of the righteous Kohen Gadol can indeed be very powerful because that prayer comes from the depth of his heart. It is a prayer of pain. It's a prayer to God, save me. 
help me. It may be a terrible prayer for a terrible outcome, the death, God forbid, of the righteous Kohen Gadol. But it's a prayer that comes from a broken heart. And that is what prayer depends on. Prayer, the, the power of a prayer depends on its intensity, its desperation, its total reliance on God and only God for healing and redemption. And so, yes, the mother of the Kohen Gadol feared this prayer and worried about her son. So she would bake and distribute goodies. Did that cause those sentenced there to stop praying for the Kohen Gadol's death? No. Of course, they continued to pray for his death. But the prayer no longer had the same intensity. It no longer had the same passion. How much of a broken heart can you have while you're eating chocolate chip cookies with pecans? And how much passion can you have in that prayer when those cookies are handed to you by this woman who just wants her son to live? You are eating fresh cookies and you are looking into her tearful eyes you may still pray, but it won't be with the same intensity. It won't be with the same feeling. And if the prayer loses its heart, the prayer loses its power. And the mother of the Kohen Gadol feels she has helped save her son. What an essential lesson for every one of us, each time we pray. Are we praying like our lives are at stake and only God can save us? Or are we praying while eating chocolate chip cookies? It makes all the difference. My friends, I wish you a beautiful night and a fantastic Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.